Welcome you all to the first ever Pro Wrestling for Dummies. This is our start of edition of Pro Wrestling for Dummies, the first ever pilot. We have a great guest. Sean is here. Sean, welcome to Strong Style Media and Pro Wrestling for Dummies. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here today. Sean, real quick, why don't you uh, give everybody, uh, introduce yourself, what you do with the rundown, and uh, you know how you got into wrestling or when you started getting into wrestling, and kind of just, just let everyone know everything about yourself real fast. Sure, my name's Sean Williams. I've been a wrestling fan since I was six years old. Through the TV channels, turned on a Mr. Perfect squash match sometime in like <laughs> 1990 after WrestleMania six, and that was basically it. I mean, got into Japanese wrestling through like ordering tapes on the internet years later, like a lot of uh, like a lot of us. And if you could have told like. 17 year old me that there'd be something called the WWE network and that like all these Japanese wrestling companies would have accessible wrestling in, uh, in America to us. I would not have believed you like my college years would have been completely unproductive. I would have gotten nothing done. Just, it's just, it's amazing how far we've come. If you days of tape trading, literally buying tapes on the internet so you could watch this stuff to what we, kind of amazing. I mean, I think to some extent, most people know me from Twitter. I'm stardom pretty incessantly and kind of become what I'm known for, so I'm happy to be here uh, to talk about the promotion. And that's that's one thing, too, that I've always really liked. I, I'm guessing you said WrestleMania 6, so, so you got to be mid-30s, right? 34, 35? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 33 years old. 33, okay, yeah, because I'm 35, so right around that same same time frame. I 100% agree the the whole tape trading days. I remember there was a guy at Funkoland before it was GameStop, and he uh, he had an excessive amount of Japanese tapes, and we would we would tape trade. And if I ever had anything that he didn't have, he would give me extra store credit by trading in games that basically he didn't even have, just to uh, basically rent my tapes from me, which was a tremendous and illegal thing now that I think about it <laughs> nowadays. Oh, but... very, very, we're beating <laughs> ourselves super much by you even bringing up the existence of Funko Land, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, I, I loved it. I, I remember, I want to say 1991, the first time I saw Jushin Thunder Liger at Starcade when he, it was like him and Big Josh against... I don't remember who the heck they wrestled in that battle bowl, and I'm like, this dude oh, no, is battle bowl, lethal lottery. Yeah, and it was it was like, who is this guy with horn? And then I, he beats Pillman for the light heavyweight title. 
leads you to Super Brawl 2. Pillman beats him back. I think I cried after that happened. And my mom's like, what are you crying about? It's just wrestling. And I'm, shut up, mom. You know, I'm mad about it. And, you know, you go from there and it's like, you know, he's back at the next battle board. He's got a tag with Eric Watt, so he's jobbing. And then you don't see him for a while. And, and I immediately said, okay, I need to get more of this guy. And I was used to Great Muda doing NWA, so that wasn't an issue. But, you know, I, I needed more of this Liger. And, you know, you, you start fighting, as you said, the tape trading and so on and so forth. And now we look at, you know, today I went on my lunch break and I, I watched Hiroki Goto and Juice Robinson just sitting on my phone. And if you had told me 20 years ago that's a thing, you know, I mean, obviously even the phones. But, I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's it's completely insane. And it's, and it's not just, like, it's the one thing to imagine WWE has this, but so many more promotions have it now. Like, to imagine that, it's talking about Storm Jade, to imagine that a random Japanese Joshi promotion would have something you could watch, just thinking about that in something like, 95, in like 93, 94, 95, when All Japan Women's is in its heyday, when the original JWP is around, when, like, Joshi is at its super highest. And then considering the fact that Joshi went into a period a lot of people called the Dark Ages, when a lot of the promotions due to overexpansion started to contract and you didn't have a lot of attention on the product to go from that, what we have now with a pretty healthy overall uh, Joshi Poderesu scene is kind of impressive, especially considering uh, the fact that we get to see a whole lot more of it than we ever used to. Yeah, and, and that's what really, really intrigued me too, you know, bringing up, as we're going to get into a stardom is, you know, mid-90s seeing, you know, Akira Hokuto and, you know, the likes like that. And it it just was like, I need more of this. And even WWF for a minute brought in, you know, Asia Kong and Bo Lacano and, and actually ran some of these, and, and it was remarkable that it didn't take off more, and especially with WCW, you know, as I mentioned with Akira Hokuto, that I thought they would have done more and brought more in as they tried to build Medusa, but it just never seemed to work. And then, you know, obviously you mentioned I, the – oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I think the legend goes the WWF thing, and I'm trying to remember who told me this, so I cannot take credit for it. But I think I remember it when something defective, they saw that big Survivor Series match, like the, the I think it was like 10-woman tag match, and they worked all Japan women's style, which is to say they beat the ever-loving hell out of each other. And so <laughs> the next night on Raw was Aja Kong versus Chaparita Asari, I believe it was. And so they told them, like, guys, you need to calm down, uh, take things, don't go so stiff. And Aja proceeded to be Aja, and they had probably one of the stiffest matches, definitely at that point in the history of Monday Night Raw. They're like, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. And <laughs> that's one of the reasons that uh, that didn't go so well. But it was a different time, and I think uh, it's one of those things that I think years later, if it would have happened, it would have worked, and it would have gotten over because WWF's audience, WWE now obviously has changed significantly. I think it's a lot more of a work rate heavy offense than it's ever been in any point in its history. And I mean, I think you can see to some extent as the women's division has grown and evolved in WWE that the fans want to see that they want to see harder hitting, more realistic action. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, just, you know, it's evident too with the, the mass amount of international flavor that especially the women's division even is, is starting to bring in and cater to that audience. And obviously one of the big names uh, Kyrie Hojo, or Kyrie Sane, as they know her now, came from stardom. And, you know, let's just get into that. Basis of stardom for anybody who's never heard of it, how long ago did it start? What was the, what was the whole 
upbringing and in, in to how it became a promotion and just just the whole general idea that made Stardom a company. Okay, so I'll go way back a little bit because really it starts with one man named Rossi Ogawa. Ogawa sort of has this Jim Cornette story going for him that he was actually a photographer for the old All Japan Women's promotion, became a businessman, was involved in a bunch of Joshi promotions over the years, one of them being a company called Hypervisual Fighting Arceon, later was involved with something called JD Star. And in some ways, these promotions are kind of spiritual predecessors to what stardom would become. Stardom came into existence in 2011, and it was a promotion for the most part built initially around one woman named Yuzuki Aikawa, who is an extremely popular Grabore idol. There's no real equivalent, and I've, tried, I've been on podcasts before, and I've tried to explain what a Grabore idol is. There's just no equivalent to it in the United States. It's kind of like an Instagram model meets like a uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, but even that's not really like good enough in these senses. I mean, Aikawa was extremely popular. At one point, she took this crazy challenge on where if she didn't hit like some insane number of hits, like 5 million in like a certain period of time on her blog, she'd retire from entertainment industry. She did it in like, like a couple of weeks. So she's like this huge potential, she's this huge crossover star. And that's something that Joshi Poderesu has always strived for. I mean, when you go back to the beauty pair in the 70s, the All Japan Women's, or the Crush Gals in the 80s, they weren't just wrestling stars. They also had like top 10 pop singles in Japan. So there's this sense of crossover popularity that they were more than just professional wrestlers. They were legitimate idols. In addition, and so Aikawa is sort of the perfect person to build this company around, and that's in 2011. And one of the things that drew me to stardom in the beginning was, I mean, I heard about this in like 2011 and 2012, but I didn't really get super compelled into it until I found out that Aikawa retired due to injury in 2013. And so I started looking into the history of this company, and this is a company that has had a lot of misfortune befall it over the years with important wrestlers retiring or being injured, various classes of rookies getting hurt and having to retire or not working out for other reasons. There's the unfortunate Yoshiko Act Yasukawa Gasly match that happened in 2015. That is, unfortunately, for better and worse, in some ways, the first time a lot of people heard about stardom. So there's a lot of just, it's a company with a lot of a lot of backstory, a lot of interesting story. But one of the things that should be said is that it is essentially, it's an idol promotion in a lot of ways, which means that it features a lot of attractive women that market a wide, and there are a wide variety of ways in which the company takes advantage of this, whether it's through photo books or selling, uh, or selling checkies. Like I don't know how many of you follow the Japanese idol music industry. I'm not qualified to talk about that, but there's a lot of merchandise that's sold around the premise of these women being very attractive. At the same time, historically, all over Rossi's promotions that he's been involved with also feature very high-quality wrestling. So if you've never seen Arsian, it's what you might think of as sort of traditional Joshi wrestling, but with a kind of heavy battle art-style shoot influence. Like, if you've never seen Aja Kong, like, get on top of someone in the mountain, start raining punches, it's really terrifying, and she does it a whole bunch in Arsene. <laughs> and so there's, 
basically just as a resident, because I know I'm rambling a little bit, but the company basically started with Ogawa. Aikawa is the centerpiece. Wrestler named Fuka Kakimoto, who was, also did some kickboxing and was originally the head trainer of the dojo. She went on to become their ring, also be the ring announcer. She just recently retired from that position and from the company. And I always mispronounce her first name, so I apologize to Nanai in advance. But Nanai Takahashi, who was a longstanding professional wrestler, was a former All Japan women's champion, was one of the last holders at the company's red belt. And so she was like kind of the playing manager. So those four really were sort of the foundation of the company when it was founded in 2011. That's that's crazy. That's that's it's it's such an interesting concept when you think of how a promotion starts nowadays, you know, and especially an American based promotion starts. All right. You know, this is this and we're going to get, you know, all this talent for certain reasons. And it's it's just interesting. And I, I and I'm really taking taking into it. Um, the closest I, thing I, see, I think I mm-hmm. and it's. The irony of what I'm about to say is almost the exact opposite of what stardom became, but the closest thing I can think of is when in the U.S. is when Gabe Sapolsky founded Evolve, and the whole idea is he wanted to find it, found it around like Dragon, like Brian Daniel. We're talking about that. He wanted Brian Daniel to be the centerpiece of it, and you can totally see that in a lot of the decisions that he made in early Evolve. Uh, but in okay. obviously stardom's like the entire sort of opposite universe of what that is, but it's one of the few examples I can think of, at least in American wrestling, where a promotion was sort of founded around the idea of someone being a centerpiece. Now, when when they got all their talent, obviously, you know, you mentioned, you know, the looks and and high entertainment value with with just the outside appeal and appearance with with the magazines and such. What was the resource that they went by to get the the workers like the actual workers to come into the company or was this all let's grab these women and we'll just train them and it they struck gold with it so they looked for they looked for women women with athletic backgrounds aikawa had a background in taekwondo which was pretty evident in the way she wrestled she used a lot of flashy kicking techniques things like that people with athletic backgrounds to this day they still recruit they still recruit women with some form of athleticism in their background, whether it's karate, ten. There's a wide variety of stuff that if you look at their past, you'll see they all have something like that involved. Okay, okay. Now, obviously, the biggest name that I can think of that was in there, and I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm going to kind of look over some notes here as we go. So some of this, sure. I, if I jump ahead, I apologize, but I'm kind of just going off of what I've throughout the weeks here looking through this. Um, biggest name I see coming in right at the beginning, Io Shirai was right right there at the beginning. Is that correct? Almost almost at the beginning, and she wasn't a full-time member of the roster for a while, a couple of years. But she okay. did come in towards the middle of 2011, she didn't. She probably really finished herself exactly on the same show that Akawa retired, which was Ryugoku Cinderella in 2013. The biggest show that they've run, and I think the most recent time, and I could be wrong about this, that a women's wrestling promotion in Japan ran Sumo Hall. So that was Akawa's retirement show. And a show EO defeated Alpha Female to win the top title in Stardom, and that was sort of the beginning of what is arguably her run as ace of the company to this day. Okay. Okay. And I see that show right now. 
yeah, there's there's some actual names that I reckon. Like Minami Toyota, I see was on this. That's kind of cool. Uh, Miko Satomura yeah, like, was on there. Yeah, that was a huge show. It was arguably the biggest show in the history. Definitely the biggest show in the history of the company. A lot of outside talent was on that show. And it was sort of in a lot of ways, I consider the end of the initial stardom. It was built around built around Aikawa, and you can still see it in, in, in it even to this day. But that's something we can get into as we get into the more modern product, too, because, I mean, I can talk about stardom history for forever and ever and ever, but at the same time, I want to, I want to make sure that we talk about what's going on now, because now is what's accessible to most people. So, uh, Ryogoku Cinderella, as you mentioned, that was what they, what it looks like they classified as the end of chapter one. Um, yeah. Chapter two then kicks off 2014. It looks like was this, was this a big enough turning point that people started to really make note because of how big, I mean, I see they, they drew 5,500 people to Sumo Hall, which is awesome, you know, for a, you know, three year women's company right off the bat like that. Chapter two kicking off in 2014. How does that kind of lead over the next year or so with this company that really started getting it going forward even more? It's ironic that you say that because in a lot of ways, Ryugoku is the high point of the company for a while, both creatively and in terms of the action. Losing Aikawa was a huge blow to the company. They'd lost Yoko Bito a couple of months earlier to a cervical spine injury, and Bito was always called the ace candidate. She was meant to be basically the next in line to be the ace after Aikawa. The company lost within the space of a couple of months, arguably ace candidate type balance. So they shifted and they started working to build around the team of Kadi Hojo, who you know, and Nakumi Shozuki, who you may or may not know. She was a second generation trainee along with Kairi. They had a very popular tag team together. They just won the Goddesses of Stardom belts from uh, the Kimura Monster Army team of Kyoko Kimura and uh, Hilly Hatred at the uh, Cinderella show. But Natsumi was injured soon after and had to retire, so that plan sort of went up in smoke. And what you kind of had was Io was holding the company together for a while, essentially. That's interesting. That's, and I see a lot of, you know, outside talent kind of coming in. You know, you mentioned Alpha Female. Those of you who watched the Mae Young Classic, she was in that. I don't remember what they called her in that, but she was a big German German girl. Yes, thank you, Jazzy Gabbard. I was, I was, I couldn't think of the name. The only thing I could that kept popping up in my head was when she was suddenly Chris Saban's manager for like I don't know, like a week or whatever in Impact, um, which was a an interesting. Maybe it was longer, but I, I, I don't know. I, I just remember seeing this woman. I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman's a, a beast. And to her credit, I, I enjoyed what, you know everything she had done with it. We we move into 2015 here, uh, end of 20, 2014. No, I didn't realize that this is this short of a chapter. Holy cow. Um, you know, I, the best. no, no, I, I was just going to say, I enjoy the, I enjoy the classification of the chapter. I've never seen something like that. And I think it's interesting that you kind of, that they're classifying it as chapters of the company. You don't get that. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely interesting. They definitely have a, this, the company has always had a very strong sense of its own history in a lot of ways is kind of kind of a building year. Io has the belt for a long time. She eventually passes she eventually loses the belt in twenty fourteen to Yoshiko, who's becomes the first 
Stardom Trueborn to hold the top title in Stardom. And we'll get into what the belts in Stardom are and everything once we get past the history and up to the present day. But So for her to be the first person to hold the belt was a big deal. She defended it a couple of times, and this leads us into 2015, which is probably one of the most tuous year in the company's history because you have the, Yosh- the Yoshiko Akiyosukawa incident in early 2015, which brings a lot of the company forces a lot of forces a lot of rules changes like this day you are not allowed to strike with a closed fist and start him because of what happened it led to changes in management it led to Nanaya Takahashi leaving the company that she had been a part of since day one essentially and she would eventually go on to form Stealing Yoshiko left Yoshiko left stardom, would eventually, as many people know, resurfaced in seedling with Nanai, and it eventually basically led Yasukawa to retire due to the injuries that she'd suffered in addition to the fact that she was battling grave disease to begin with. And so it's another, another instance where this company looks snake bit, because Yoshiko and Act were probably two of its top stars at that point. They, the ghastly match incident happened in a World of Stardom title match, so in Karako and Hall, so on the biggest stage the company has, the shooting incident happens. It brings all this negative attention. And this is the year that stardom actually makes an experience in the United States later in the year in 2015. It does two shows in California. Ogawa has always been ambitious. She's always talked about internationally wanting to make a bigger product, like a worldwide product. And so it was just this very weird year in the sense that all this negative stuff happened at the same time they're trying to start pushing internationally and they're, starting, they're bringing in international talent. Something that I think it goes a little underrated in the history of stardom is in 2015, they make a deal with, uh, with cheerleader Melissa, who starts helping them bring in a lot of like West Coast talent names uh-huh. like Thunderosa, who you may know as Cobra Moon from Lucha Underground. And they start bringing in a lot of international talent, which helps the company through what were some otherwise lean years in terms of internal talent development. I mean, I think one of the things I'll talk about once we get to the present is that stardom needed a couple of years to sort of refill its bench. It's always had a strong top line with the three daughters of stardom, Io Shirai, Kari Hojo before she left, and Mayu Iwatani. But the mid card and the undercard were always somewhat lacking internally, so you had a lot of you always had a lot of foreigners that were in important roles, not only just because that's what you do in Japanese wrestling, but because they needed to fill up cards. They needed them to be able to produce shows that had like five matches on them. That's interesting. I, I see this too. Uh, so what's this Kyrie Hojo uh, became uh, bringing the sides closer. Is this after the shoot? Yeah, yeah, no, after that, like, Kyrie was involved in sort of trying to help keep the company together, and, like, I think, I'm trying to remember if she was wrestler's liaison at this point, but I think that incident led to a lot of changes, some of the ones I mentioned, and Ofuka ended up taking a pay cut, and some other, like, ownership fell on its sword, as is common to do in situations okay. like this. So it was really, it was really a black eye, and it could have been something that could have been very harmful for the company if, management didn't fall on its sword as quickly and decisively as it did. Hey, you know, thinking back, I remember seeing that uh, on YouTube maybe a year or two ago. And that was, you know, I always heard the names of, of some of the women, but I had gone on and said, okay, I, I need to check this out. And it was before the, the stardom world had come out. And that was always the first thing that came up. And 
I was it was it was a little disappointing because I knew this company had way more to offer than just this, you know, as they they called it a ghastly match there, and yeah. um, so it was always interesting that that kept popping up, and I see now why. Uh, the, you know, it changed the landscape and why it was such a big deal for that company. It, you know, it, as you mentioned, a black eye. It's something that, again, if it wasn't handled the way it was, could have very easily doomed the company. It was also just a hard time in general with Nanaya leaving. Her close friend, Natsuki Tayo, had been part of the roster for a long time beforehand. She'd reti- she retired around this time as well, so a lot of the veteran presence was gone. And Nanaya retiring was also important because she'd been teaming with Kaidi Hojo for a while as a team that was doing a good job of helping Kaidi be perceived on that next level. They were the goddesses champions at one point, and it was basically sort of doing for her what originally the team with Shozuki was supposed to be doing. So that all happening, there's all been all this turmoil. So between 2013 and 2015, really, I think the story of the company is there's a lot of t- turmoil. Once Aikawa retires, Bido gets hurt. There's a lot of the rookie situation isn't as strong as it would become later. Like there's just a lot of inter- there's a lot of turmoil going on that it starts to get stabilized in 2016 and starts to get stabilized even more in 2017 to the point where the company lost the company lost Kairi and is arguably now in 2018 overall top to bottom in a stronger position than it was with her, which sounds kind of crazy and insane. And I am sure they would love to still have her, but the company was able to weather the blow of her leaving, which in the past was something that could have caused a major problem. And that's one of those things too. If you have a good enough management, you can reload like that. It, it reminds me of an example when Anderson Gallows, Nakamura and AJ Styles leave new Japan and they have a better year. You know, it, it's, that's crazy to think that. But they they went and did it, you know, and that's kind of where you're going with this now, it seems like. You know, and it's a testament to, I mean, I think stardom's, stardom has what, there's a couple of things that got people into stardom. And there's a couple of phases, I think. In the beginning, it was the matches that Io and Kaidi and Mayu were putting on that people were finding on YouTube or Daily Motion or whatever. It was hearing about the Ghastly Match incident. It was hearing about the USA shows and then obviously stardom world comes out. So it starts to get more, it starts to get more buzz for a lot of reasons that we'll discuss because I think stardom world is probably the best of these services for the simple fact that it translates all the promos and it translates the post-match promos. So you can follow along with the storylines of the company. And then Uh, now with you could, now it's very hard to be online and not the stardom, stardom gifts from someone who's posting one of them. So Oedo Tai became very popular in the West. Chris Wolf's kind of mimetic promos, just eating people and doing whatever she wanted, sort of became part of the style of the unit as a whole. And so now we're at the point where I think where I the Western fandom is, because, is as strong as it ever is. I mean, I can just log on Twitter and talk with way more people about stardom than it was when I started my silly blog in like late in like mid to late 2015 about the company being like, I wonder if anyone else knows about this. <laughs> when, you know, and I, I, you know, obviously we're going here 2016, I think was when, as you mentioned, the stardom world really started hitting. It was a, you know, a YouTube went by itself. I really got into wanting to find this and watching more and more of this when I remember seeing Yoshirai, Kairi Hojo, and Mayo Iwatani show up on Lucha Underground when they worked that, that three-match series with Pentagon. 
And I'm going, yeah, my that's, God, everything I've read oh, is true with these women. They're fantastic. I mean, that I oh, completely forgot about that. and I should not have. That was another huge thing in terms of exposure for them and exposure for them in the West. And that then with Stardom World, it was a ready-made, uh, ready-made way for people to get more eyes on the product and more attention on the product. And in a lot of ways, I think the rest is history. You know, and and a lot of people, you know, I I've shown people who didn't know them, and I said you may have seen them if you if you ever watched Lucha, but these three women went out there and and as much as WWE was on their come up with their women's division, and yeah. you know Impact had their their ups and downs before with the Kong and Gail Kim years and things like that, you'd never seen women go in there with a guy like Pentagon, and it it looked natural, like it didn't look. Oh, they they run a little different, or they move a little awkward, or they don't hit each other as hard and stuff. You know, you're watching Kyrie Hojo's getting thrown through a a row of chairs, and then Pentagon selling pile drivers for Io Shirai or whatever was going. I mean, it was it just seemed natural. And it was incredible, and that it was such a groundbreaking moment over here. I think one of the things that I mean, I think like the first time I saw Japanese women wrestle live was actually at Chikara the King of Trios in 2012. They had over a Sendai Girls trio and a trio representing then JWP. And the thing I was just struck at is how hard they hit. And like, they would hit the guys hard. Then on night three, I remember there was like, there was a tag match featuring Japanese women and they hit each other harder. Like, you can just, being that close, I mean, you can hear how hard they're hitting each other. You can just sort of sense it and feel it and wince along with everyone else. And I think that's the level of athleticism in these matches. And like, because EO versus Kyrie or Kyrie versus Mayu or the trilogy of EO and Mayu matches, they just go for it. They are some of the best matches I've ever seen, any promotion, any gender, anything. And I think that's what got a lot of people into the company and now some of those people are confused because they're seeing uh, these cute pictures of Tom McNaccano posted on the Stardom official English account all the time. They're wondering what the hell is going on? I thought this was a work rate company. <laughs> and it's a work rate company and it's an idol promotion. It is essentially both at the same time and there are some people who are into it for one, there are some people who are into it for the other and there are some people who are into it for both. Um, you know, I think, too, another thing, 2016, I noticed, obviously, um, moving on here, with you know, the Star World Association World Championship came out. Um, obviously, I want to talk about that when we get to the titles, but one name that we really start to hear about and really seems like is a major play over there and finally cr- cracked that big three as you talk about the daughters, yeah. uh, October, they bring in Tony Storm. And yeah. Tony, she is better like, I think, I think player. I think it's important to note Tony Storm is, to my knowledge, still under contract with Stardom. She was the first first foreign competitor to sign a contract with Stardom. If you look at the official Japanese Stardom website, she is on the official roster page along with uh, Zaya Brookside, who is, who is also a Stardom roster member, has the jacket and everything. I think Tony was like, when they brought her in, she was the first foreigner that was really sort of positioned on that level. And they brought in a bunch of foreigners and up until that, up until her, really, most foreigners had just been coming, and they'd been shoved into Oedo Tai, right? Oedo Tai was the evil heel unit. So they brought in just, like, all of these foreigners, and a lot of them were very good. Like, a lot of them were names you might recognize. Heidi Lovelace, who's now Ruby Riot in WWE television, came in as part of Oedo Tai. Nikki Storm, now Nikki Cross, and, uh, 
NXT, part of Oedo Tai. When Viper first came in, she was part of Oedo Tai. They're bringing all these foreigners to join the unit. But Storm was positioned differently. She was really the first foreigner who was given the chance to sort of stand on her own. And she fought, and fought to the finals of that SWA title tournament, lost to EO in that, but then eventually beat EO for the SWA belt. And defended that belt. I think she's the most defending champion in the history of Star. I think she hit something crazy like V15 with that belt before she finally <laughs> lost it recently. But she's definitely, she's definitely one of the most protected talents in the company on a, on, the, on a level with EO, on a level with Mayu. For sure now, especially in this formulation, the company with Kairi off to WWE, she is one of the most important She's one of the most important stars in the company and obviously is now the World of Stardom champion, their top title. So it's obvious that management has a lot of faith in her and it's a tough position to be in. I mean, the Stardom fans have in a lot of ways embraced her and a lot, begun to embrace a lot of the foreigners, which is a change for Japanese wrestling. I mean, that's a change in Japanese wrestling that's occurring across the board in New Japan too, where you have Kenny Omega who's been embraced by the fans and you're starting to get this idea of, not all these foreigners are coming in to be the evil heel menace that gets beaten clean by the virtuous Japanese baby face. And thing, things in that sense are starting to change a little bit all around Japan. And, you know, you, I, I love that you bring up the Kenny Omega New Japan thing because it still blows my mind that, you know, you look at this wrestling Duntaku tour. We just had Jay White and David Finley main event. And now next week we're getting Kenny Omega Adam Page main eventing with Cody Rhodes in the semi-main. It's like... This wasn't something you see, you know. You look at the '90s, and it's all Muda, Chono, Hashimoto. You know, it's it. You know, you get the Stan Hansens and the Scott Nortons here and there, and the you know Doctor Death and whatnot. But it was never. It, it just never felt this consistent. You know, Juice Robinson's in there with with Hiroki Goto. You know, this throwaway guy WWE had nothing for us. You know, rocking and a lot of them were baby. And they're baby faces. Juice Robinson is a baby yeah. face. Omega is now a baby face. Like the the foreign baby face wasn't really, I mean, obviously there's some exceptions to this, but for the most part, the foreigners came in and their job was to put over the uh, the native talent. I mean, that's the way it was for such a long time. And that's starting to change. And that's something where stardom's use of foreign talent is one of the reasons that I think it's gotten to the position it has. And it's, I think, getting, and I know some people disagree with me, but I think it's getting smarter and smarter with how it uses its foreign talent, who it's, who it's choosing as its foreign talent and what purposes it's using with individual foreign talent. I think the strategy, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we get into the roster, but it's always been a part of stardom from even the early days. If you look back, the very first tournament to crown the first Red Belt champion, the first World of Stardom champion, Mercedes Martinez was actually in that tournament. And, you know, it's it's nice, too, because you look at these companies that obviously stardom, and, we you know, we talked a little New Japan, obviously, but... When you're not seeing them come in just to put other people over the the outside, the foreigners, if you will, it makes it feel like it's a bigger deal. Like, I feel like the company is a bigger company when it's not, oh, here comes this special showcase from this person out of the country that you'll see on this tour. It's, hey, this is the best place to go, and that's why you're getting everybody from around the world. And I I love it. I love the fact that they're not afraid – to oh I hope we don't make anyone mad in our you know in, in in the country, Tony Storm is that good and she's over. Let's let's use her and it's great. 
And look, this isn't to say that stardom doesn't use foreign talents, but it's native talent over. If you look at Io Shirai's recent white belt reign, almost all of her defenses have been against uh, your foreigners of the week, so to speak. But what you're <laughs> saying is true in that there's still that element of it where they get built up strong to title match, lose the EO, and they go on to do whatever else. But at the same time, if they get over, if they are prove themselves, there's not an artificial glass ceiling on how far they can go in stardom. And that's, and that's something that makes it different. Like the fact that Tony Storm can win the belt, the fact that Viper beat, Viper's the one who beat her. It wasn't a native talent who eventually beat Tony Storm to get that belt. It was Viper who graduated in some ways, decided to leave Oedo ties, part of Queen's Quest, like a more native stardom unit. Like for lack of a better term, it's one of the units that is the company, not the unit that's fighting against the company. And so it's just like, it's interesting to see how women like Storm and Viper and Zaya Brookside and a lot of the talent that's coming in have sort of made themselves part of the company in a way that would have been difficult even like five, six years ago. We we see at the end of the year, uh, 2017 now, Kyrie Lee is for WWE. They begin their partnership with with Ring of Honor to to kind of funnel the the Women of Honor division, get some of their you know women over there. Mandy Leone goes over there, Scarlett Bordeaux goes over there. We see things like that happen back and forth, building the relationships. This is this company is now a big deal, uh, but then we also hear Io Shirai was apparently going to leave too. She doesn't pass the physical. I know a lot of people ask about that. Uh, you know, just on our, you know, back in the day when it happened, people would ask us, how how did that all go down? I mean, look, assuming everything that you read on the internet is true and that there's always perils in that, the WWE doctors didn't clear her because of, I think it was her neck or something along, or something along those lines. And so, like, and that was a question because I remember everyone that was for a while was, okay, Kyrie's going, Kyrie's not going, wait, Kyrie and EO are going, wait, only Kyrie's going, and then, <laughs> there was all of that. So Io took, because after Io dropped the belt, Tamayu took a couple months off to heal. And I mean, I think, I mean, you can even sort of hear, like, when Kaidi retires at her retirement ceremony, Io says something to her that basically implies that we're going to meet somewhere else in the world. And so I think at that point, she was still planning on going, but then whatever the doctor said, and I mean, I personally feel bad for feel bad for EO because she is one of the greatest wrestlers on the planet. And there is something like Kaidi was at WrestleMania. She wrestled for like 70, 65, whatever the hell thousand it was in the Superdome in that women's battle Royal. EO's talents deserve to be seen by that many people at some point in her career. So while it is obviously a huge gain for stardom to have her around, there is a part of me that is sad for her that she at this point, at least, doesn't look like she's going to get to wrestle in front of the audience that her talents deserve to. And, and you know, this, this, I know a lot of people have, have mixed feelings on this, but from everything I've I've watched, and obviously, you know, my education on this is nothing compared to you know yours, especially, but a lot of Stardom fans, even in general, I always felt like Shirai was better of the two from what I've watched. And with you say the sediments of her not getting to, to to be able to experience that many fans, yeah, that is that is kind of a shame. And I, I do I do hope maybe one day it does happen. And and the thing is, as much as I agree with what I just said, I think Kaidi is the better fit for WWE. I think mm-hmm. that character that she had in Stardom was basically able to be lifted wholesale 
pretty much plop down in the middle of WWE, <laughs> and it works. It, it just works. Like, I think Io would get over with what she can do in the ring, don't get me wrong, but, like, when you look at Kairi, when you when you look at what Asuka has been able to do from a personality standpoint, from getting into the, just getting into that company and basically being able to command an audience anywhere she's gone, and obviously she can wrestle, but I don't think there's a better character actor, for lack of a better term, in WWE than she is. Just what she can do with a look, like the way she owns her character, she owns every element of who she is. And Kairi has the potential for that kind of charisma. She just she is the she has a presence that is just undeniable that transcends language that transcends any of those things i quite frankly think that if wwe doesn't screw her up she will be a massive massive star for them one day and there's obviously no guarantees but you know <laughs> it's it's a, a definitely a weird turn that she's taken since winning that tournament but i mean that's a whole nother story I think for a whole other day I, I do not to get off topic but I do remember we had a we had somebody who called in one week and it was like you know I don't understand why any of you said that Asuka's ever done anything dark she's she's pretty and, and pleasant and we posted a link to her on YouTube against uh, Minoru Suzuki where she takes off her helmet and just blood drips everywhere and uh yeah. I, that person never called us back because I think we scared them away from Asuka. Like, <laughs> maybe uh, saw this odd Cayman Rider helmet thing, blood fighting Suzuki as it was interesting. And, and I think that too to tie in with the Asuka point is is such a testament to how well she can adapt to a character and really make it work. Because I've seen three, four different ways that she's appeared over the years, whether it's Connor or Asuka, that are all, you know, it just, it, it blows you away with, you could tell that she's a big deal in the room, with whether you knew wrestling or not. Yeah, I 100% agree. So let's move here. Current day, uh, you know, the last the last noted thing that I see, February 18, 2018, uh, Stardom announces the creation of the seventh, their seventh active title, the Future of Stardom Championship, meant for wrestlers, Less, with less than two years of experience in professional wrestling or under the age of 20, it really shows that they're trying to grab them young, establish, and go with that background that you said. And to me, I think that's a great concept for a, for a title because you really can kind of separate, but I don't think anyone, you know, it's kind of like the Young Lions in New Japan where yep. you know that these guys might not be as good right now, but everybody's into the match because you get to follow their careers. Um Thirty belt at one point. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Which was kind of similar, but like, so to go into this title, it was something that I remember a lot of Stardom fans at the internet were a little upset about. Like, why does this company have another title? Stardom has many titles, as we'll get into pretty soon. But I think the guy behind the English language uh, Stardom Twitter posted in the Stardom Reddit something that actually resonates because the existence of a title match on a show actually results in, at least in Japan and at least for stardom in more people coming to the show. And that makes sense because it's a reason for these people to have like an eight to 12 minute singles match, which remember this is Japanese booking. This is, there's a lot of tag matches in stardom. There's a lot of trios matches in stardom. There's a lot of random three ways, which are usually pretty fun, but your rookies aren't always going to have reasons to have like decent length singles matches against each other. So if you're a fan of one of the younger talents, the chance to see them in a match like this is a potential draw because they're not going to get that opportunity 
all the time. And it's also an indication that stardom has enough rookies and young talent now to actually have this belt and have there be different challengers for it and have it be its own kind of little division. And it is right now. There's a good amount of, there's enough wrestlers to make this a thing and make it be credible and have enough challengers that it doesn't get boring, which is a testament to what the dojo has been able to do over the past, probably like two years in terms of putting talent out there. So let's get into that first then here. Obviously the roster I think is the big standout point because of how many, how many solid workers they have and, and just the different characters and charisma and, and, you know, just top to bottom with it. Where, where is the easiest way to dissect this roster if you were to describe what somebody's going into here with the new company? I mean, you have okay. obviously your, your heel baby face. I mean, the floor is yours here on this. Cool. So Stardom actually made this really easy, even easier than it would normally be, because very recently they had a draft, and there were three captains and a, whole, and a bunch of teams were picked. So there are basically three units in Stardom right now. And each of them have some interesting problems, but I'll go into that as we go. Your three units are basically Queen's Quest, which is led by Yoshirai. You have Oedo Tai, which is led by its so-called charisma leader, Kagetsu. And you have Stars, which is the new name for the Stardom Army, the main army, Sekigun, whatever you want to call them, and that's led by Mayu Iwatani. So I'll take those all on in turn. Queen's Quest is Yoshirai's unit. It was founded by Io when she cruelly betrayed her Thunder Rock tag team partner, Mayu. She brought back Hazuki, HZK, now Hazuki again. Time is a different story. We'll get to that in a minute. Momo Watanabe eventually joined the group. And so Io basically made this faction for which the defining trait of it is competition. Io has fought pretty much every member of her faction at some point or another. Everyone in Queen's Quest wants to beat her. And she kind of welcomes that. She kind of welcomes the competition. She kind of says, come on, come step to the queen, see what you can do. And so that internal competition is sort of the defining, driving feature of Queen's Quest and always has been. So after the draft, Queen's Quest looks something like this. We've talked a little bit about Yoshirai. She is stardom's ace. She is arguably the best wrestler in the company, has been the centerpiece of the company for basically since 2013, one of the best wrestlers in the world. Then you have Momo Watanabe, who very recently just graduated from high school, had a very high-level <laughs> match for, Io, for Io's white belt on a recent show. She's probably basically the, no, the number two in the stable right now. She probably still very much wants to murder Io and take that belt from her in spite of being <laughs> stablemate, so that's kind of the danger of Io's uh, unit-building philosophy. Then you have Viper, who joined the group and was drafted again by EO to be part of it. She's the SWA champion right now after beating Tony Storm. She provides, she's the heavy hitter of the group, the Megaton Barbie. She gives the group a good amount of personality and, again, that big, strong presence, which you kind of need. Some, sometimes you just need someone to go in and beat people and slam them and just throw their weight around, and Viper, is, she's the heavy hitter of the group. She's the cleanup hitter. She comes in when things are tough and makes problems go away. Then you have Azumi, who is one of my favorite characters in the history of the company, so just indulge me for a couple of minutes, because she started very, very young. I mean, like, I want to say like 11 or 12 young. <laughs> Stardom used to do these things called kids' fights. So if you, look, if you ever go on Stardom World and look at like 2011 shows, if you ever go on Stardom World and look at 2011 shows, 
you're going to see this, like, nine-year-old girl called Haruka in a bunch of matches. Her most famous one came at the first ever Karakuen in the history of the show when she fought Kenny Omega in a match that's been seen by a lot of people and probably still gives Jim Cornette aneurysm to this day. Ah, <laughs> okay. So she was the first. And then Azumi kind of became the second later on. So she was wrestling in a lot of these, like, little exhibition matches against members of the roster, yada, yada, yada. So then she started to grow up a little bit. And unlike most, like, you would imagine this, like, young girls, like, kind of doing the cute, sweet, oh, look at me thing. So she, she just became kind of an asshole, really. And she basically started conscripting, like, all these random, like, early card wrestlers who would be wrestling in the opening matches into a stable that she called Azumi's Army. So it's this, like, little, like, 13-year-old girl leading, like, a stable with Kaori Oniyama, who's probably, like, two and a half times her age and who's totally into being the commander of this stupid army. And some of these, their promos are really hilarious. Like, definitely worth looking up in, like, 2016 Stardom World just to see Azumi calling people grannies and just, like, it's, it's really fun. But so, based on necessity, because Momo uh, suffered a severe knee injury, was out for a long time, and Queen's Quest time needed a third really badly for a bunch of reasons, so EO drafted her up to become part of Queen's Quest, and that was really sort of her graduation from the kids' fight days, her graduation from sort of the opening match, Azumi's Army nonsense, and becoming a more serious player. She's really stepped up her game in the last, like, four to six months or so. It's one of those situations where you can sort of see the light go on in her wrestler's head, and it totally has for her. So she's definitely someone to watch if you're looking at, uh, if you're looking for the future. Then we have Konami, who's been kind of, I don't want to say Persona non grata in the Stardom universe, but she's been teaming with Hiromi Mimura, probably one of my favorite wrestlers and one of the best comedy presences in Stardom, but she recently retired. So Konami is now part of Queen's Quest, which is a significant upgrade for her in terms of likely card position. She also wrestles very differently from anything else in Stardom. This may or may not be because she is a Kana slash Asuka protege, and you can totally tell it in the way she wrestles. Okay. Too. So, like, she, like... When Shayna Baszler came into the company to do a tour, like she had a bunch of exchanges with Konami, which were just like, holy shit, this, that's the kind of stuff that Konami brings to the table. And then the last two current members of Queen's Quest are two foreigners, Chardonnay and B. Priestley, who are both tagging, right, who are basically tagging right now. They challenged recently for the Goddesses of Stardom Belts, and they lost, but I think the fact that they got drafted into Queen's Quest means that it's likely that there are going to be plans for them in the future, so we'll see sort of what happens with that. That's basically where Queen's Quest stands right now. Remember, pretty much anyone in the stable probably wants to murder Eo and take her belt from her <laughs> and take the stable at some point. So that's, again, that, that's kind of Eo's philosophy. I am the ace. These are, you're, you're my allies for now, but if you, want, if you think you can come take this from me, by all means try, because I will knock you out. <laughs> so, we, yeah, so we move on from that interesting dynamic to another interesting dynamic Oedo Tai the very popular, very gifable, very mimetic antagonists of stardom you can basically trace their existence all the way back to the beginning of the company through Kyoko Kimura's attempt to co-opt the first heel stable in the history of the company when she failed to do that, she decided a better way to do things was just bring in a whole bunch of big, evil gaijin monsters and try to pound people into paste. That was the Kimura Monster Army or Monster Gun. And that sort of morphed into a way to tie when Chris Wolf debuted with the company, joined the Monster Army, 
And then Akiyasukawa joined up with them. A bunch of foreigners joined up with them, and Oedo Tai was born. The modern formation of Oedo Tai looks like this. You have Kagetsu, who is the leader of the stable. She was a freelancer for a very long time, worked a bunch of other companies, worked Oz Academy, worked in Sendai Girls, worked a whole bunch of stuff, but now became a full-time member of the roster and is also actually a trainer in the dojo now. So that's a, another significant development. She's one half of the goddesses of stardom, perennially underrated, probably one of the best women's wrestlers in Japan or in the world for that matter. Doesn't get as much credit as she probably should get for it because the way to tie matches are interference-tastic and people get thrown into chairs and she tries to hang people and there's like <laughs> all that kind of uh, good Is it like a Suzuki-Goon nonsense? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. Basically, it's Suzuki-Goon nonsense. Like, it's, it's Ozaki-Goon nonsense. I mean, Ozakat, this is a stardom show, but like... Joshi heals stables do this kind of shit all the time, too. Like, just beat him up, rock okay. him up on the outside, take advantage of numbers, shit happens. It's crazy. So, you have Kagetsu. Then we have Hanakimura, technically, is under the Wrestle One banner, believe it or not. So, she's essentially a freelancer, but she works primarily for Stardom and Sendai Girls. In Sendai Girls, she's theoretically a babyface, starting to show some potential leanings otherwise. In stardom she is basically a black lipstick wearing bad guy she is kyoko kimura's daughter kyoko was the original leader of oedo tai so han is now arguably the second in command behind kagetsu she's co-goddess of stardom champions with kagetsu they're putting together a very good strong run with the belts right now her in-ring is pretty solid. She's still getting better, but in terms of presence, in terms of character, in terms of all of that, she has everything down cold. Her promos are excellent. Like, she knows her character inside and out. She plays it well. She's going to be a very, very big star. I mean, like, right now, Japan, that magazine, I can't remember what it's called, is running, like, a popularity contest vote, and she's, like, number fifth in the most recent <laughs> ranking. She's, like, one vote behind Kazuchika Okada. So, <laughs> wow. Her potential... Her potential is through the roof, and Oedo Tai is pretty much the perfect uh, venue for her. Then we have Natsu Sumire, who also kind of plays up the uh, sexy goth kind of role, for lack of a better term. Also has the interesting character twitch. She does a lot of comedy stuff, also kind of plays being a coward sometimes. And was also in the recent Blast Bat Deathmatch, though, so she can be serious when she has to be, but at the same time... Very much kind of fits in with the, 08, with the 08 Otai ethos of stardom is kind of stuffy. Let's have some fun and beat them up while we're doing it. So that was the core group sort of going into the draft. And then they drafted three people. One of them was Hazuki, who was formerly in Queen's Quest. And Kagetsu drafted her. And so what we're finding out in the aftermath of the draft is Hazuki was unhappy, but not necessarily because she's part of Oedo Tai, but she just doesn't like Hanakimura very much. So they're starting to build an issue between the two of them. Your second signing is Session Moth Martina, who, let's face it, was basically <laughs> killing me from this group for, from her existence. Like, once it was announced that she was going over to start, I was like, okay, I think we all see where this is going. <laughs> Sumire isn't Sumire is not very happy with her because Sumire uses the Bronco Buster, too. And so Sumire just keeps calling her the drunken foreigner. So there's some trouble in paradise. So the last draft pick for Kagetsu actually has worked out way better than anyone anticipated. Her name is now Yamaguchi. She's a rookie. She just debuted. She, like Yuzuki Aikawa, is a former Grabore idol, and being somewhat terrified of Kagetsu has sort of become the group's mascot slash pet 
slash something, but has been very, very effective just being an annoying nuisance at ringside and cheating and doing whatever Kagetsu tells her to do. So she's fit in remarkably well, better than people expected. But I think the thing to watch going forward in Oedo Tai is that Kagetsu made all these draft picks that not everyone in the group is happy with. And for the most part, Oedo Tai's story throughout their existence has been their unity of the group. They've won the art, the six-person, the six-woman tag titles a lot. They've won the goddesses a lot. They've been the dominant unit, the dominant tag competitors in the company for such a long time. And it'll be interesting to see where their cohesion goes from here because people are starting to get a little bit unhappy. Sorry, I need to take a breath. I've been talking way too much. No, you're good. I'm trust me. I'm I'm sick. I, I got like a roster page, and every time a new name gets up, I start scrolling. Like, okay, this is that. This is that. This is that. Like, I'm I'm into this. Don't worry. I'm uh. All right. I'm, so, I'm enjoying it. This is awesome. This is it's it's like I said. I I obviously I've had people ask, you know, why don't you talk about this or how do we get to know this? And this was the, you know, I not to stop the subject, but um. Were you the one who who was writing the articles? I think on the Voices of Wrestling about like the introduction to it. Yeah, that's me. Okay, that's what I thought. Because um, I think that's where I found you on Twitter, and then ironically we realized we followed each other when when John Carroll uh, set it up, yeah. and they got me thinking. I'm like, you know, we 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 got an open format here to do this. Why don't we do a pro wrestling for dummies? I mean, we have a ton of people that listen, listen to our wrestling show on this network and they ask about it. I'm, I, I never thought of a way to get into it. When I read that article, I, that was, that was my Hanukkah light bulb turning on. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I got an idea here. You know? So no, but it was for me too. Cause I really wanted to get into it. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. I think there's a lot of promotions out there and a lot of great people who can cover a lot of them. I'm just happy to be on today to do this. So, Move on to the last of our three units. We have the main army stars, as it's called now, led by Mayu Iwatani. Basic Stardom's icon was part of the first class of the company's trainees, debuted on the first show. She is the last wrestler who debuted on that first show, who is still with the company today, which is an interesting little statistic. She was at one point considered the weakest wrestler in the company. She was the last wrestler from the debut roster to win her first match. She worked her way up the roster very, very slowly. Never looked like she was going to be the ace. She was never positioned like a Yuzuki Aikawa or even a Kaidi Hojo, where you could tell, okay, one day this person is going to be on top of the company. But she scratched, and she clawed, and she fought, and she worked her way into becoming what she is won the red belt from EO finally after three, after a trilogy of some of the best matches in the world got injured in a match against Tony storm, lost her belt that way due to injury, worked her way back, challenged storm for the title in the semi main of the Nagoya dream slam show lost to storm. So now she's sort of trying to find herself again. And the role that she seems to have settled into is the leader of this new stars group, the new stardom army as it's formulated into more of a unit rather than just sort of a default. So among the people she drafted are Starlight Kid, who is a younger talent, was a rookie from what I read on the Star website. It says she studied abroad at some point, so she was away from the company, came back. She's currently the future of stardom champion. She's one of the more high-flying members of the roster. She's got a lot of moves. She's 
super tiny and she's probably super young, but she's very talented in the ring for where she is. She's the first future of stardom champion and also the only masked wrestler. I mean, a lot of the wrestlers wear masks in their entrance, but she's the only wrestler who keeps her mask on during the, uh, during the match. She's kind of like this little superhero character. <laughs> That's cool. That, then you have Saki Kashima, who debuted as like the set, like after the initial rookie, she was the first new rookie to debut like midway through 2011. So she was with the company for a little while. Part won the artist belts at one point. Had this like kind of pink frilly like magical girl esque costume. Then she turned heel. Then she retired due to poor health. And all these years later, came back. Like she was one of my favorite wrestlers in early era stardom. But she would basically just try anything. Like she would try all these like weird lucha influenced moves and like some of them would hit some of them wouldn't but she was never afraid to go out there and try something new so she's very recently come back to the company after all this time and so mayu probably drafted in part just nostalgia for the old days old friend like that kind of thing then we have uh tom nakano who is a former uh, japanese pop star who has gone to professional wrestling didn't start with stardom came up through the beginning pro, like, actress girls system, became a full-time member of the stardom roster. Probably best known right now for a bunch of things, including the recurring 365 Days of Tom photo series on the official We Are Stardom English Twitter, and the fact that she's the one who decided to have a current blast bat death match in stardom of all places. <laughs> because, at one point she, because at one point she had one of them with the great, with uh, Atsushi Onita, where she was the great Tom, and she got put in an exploding coffin, and a whole bunch of weird shit happened. Which, in a lot of ways, is the interesting thing about her character, because she's this super cute, former Japanese pop star, who theoretically is basically everything this company wants and loves and they're obviously going to push her to the stars but at the same time she has all of these she has these kind of quirks like liking exploding barbed wire baseball bats <laughs> so after so she was in Oedo Tai they recruited her to Oedo Tai it's so wild <laughs> yeah it's really weird so she lost they lost this like unit versus unit match where the last person eliminated would have to leave the unit so she got forced out of Oedo Tai and then Oedo Tai totally overcompensated by, we're not sad, she's gone, and then started being mean to her. And then she's like, fuck you, we're going to fight with the exploding barbed wire baseball bat and managed to somehow convince Io Shirai to be her tag partner. And so this was the main event of, like, the recent Big Dream Slam Nagoya show is Kagetsu, who has legitimate deathmatch experience with light tubes and things. And Natsu Sumide, the coward, against Io Shirai, who is good in almost any match, but kind of terrified of exploding things. And Tom, who cut this, like, super serene serial killer promo before the match, is like, I'm going to do what I have to do to get my life back. It's a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite yeah. matches of the year. So if you, when you get world, it's something I would recommend watching. But so she and Mayu became friends after Tom got kicked out of Lido Tai. So now she's looking sort of for her new start as part of the stardom army. Now, there's a lot of other people in the stardom army because basically what happened during the draft was kind of like, okay, so anyone, both Queen's Quest and uh, Oedo Tai stopped picking at one point. So basically everyone who's not in those stables is now part of the stardom <laughs> army. But I will call to attention a couple of other people. First, Shiki Shibasawa, who is the 2017 rookie of stardom. She also looks kind of like Sakishima to the point where I kind of joke they're like doppelgangers. But so she's 
one of the up-and-coming rookies. She teams with Starlight Kid as She-Kid. They fought in the finals of the Future of Stardom at the Future of Stardom tournament. So she's someone to watch in the future going up. Then we have the curious case of Team Jungle. Jungle Kion is probably the biggest name in the company that I haven't mentioned yet. She debuted in 2015, has had a bunch of good matches in 2016, a bunch of very good matches in 2017. She challenged Kadi Hojo for the white belt at one point, had a great match. She's had great matches with Stor- Tony Storm, great matches with Viper. She's slowly and slowly and slowly sort of working her way up the card. And she wasn't drafted. And she was very mad about this. And that's not a good thing when, you, when Kiona in Japanese, technically, when you use Google Translate, it translates some, some of the effect of screaming woman or yelling woman. And she was not very <laughs> Because before this draft, she was the essential leader of a faction called Team Jungle, which consisted of herself, Natsuko Toro, who I'll talk about a little bit too, and freelancers Hiroyo Matsumoto and uh, Kaori Yoniyama, because Yoniyama just gets dragged into things and seems to have fun with whatever she does. She was in Azumi's army, that was fun. Now I'm seeing Team Jungle screaming about jungle, it's great. <laughs> but so they didn't get a chance to draft people. They were kind of ignored by this entire process and they weren't picked by anyone. So they weren't very happy. So that's something to watch going forward. Kiona has apologized for her outburst. I don't know how much I believe it though. So I feel like there's definitely potential for a Team Jungle splinter group in the future. Then you have Natsuko Tora, the only other permanent like, full-time roster member of Team Jungle. She debuted in like late 2015. Her debut happened because Azumi called her out for stealing her melon bread in the dojo. So her <laughs> debut was literally over melon bread. I tweeted about this a whole bunch in the past. Like, this actually happened. I'm still kind of amazed it actually happened. But she's gone on to become pretty solid young lioness. She's had a bunch of – she's, I think, performing above where one would expect her to be at this point of her career. She recently, 2018, had her first singles title shot for the IPW okay, women's belt against Zaya Brookside, where I thought was a pretty good match. So I think she has a lot of potential, too, to start rising up the card in the coming years. So that's basically the three units that I've left out a lot of people, mostly lower on the cards. Hanan Ruaka are two other rookies. Ruaka will be challenging soon for the, uh, for the future startup against Starlight Kid. Hanan has a judo background, uses it to great effect. There's also Natsumi, who is uh, Mary Apache's daughter. I didn't mention Mary Apache either. So she's Mexican luchadora had a lot of experience in Arsian back in the days, wrestled in Japan, somewhat familiar with Japan. Natsumi is her daughter. Then the other, Natsumi's part of the trio of rookies with herself, now who's in Oedo Tai, and Leo Onozaki, who's also just debuted, has kind of a sporty look to her. And it's really kind of too early to say anything about now or Leo or Natsumi because they're respectively like about a month into their careers at this point, but something to keep watching. They'll in time become part of the future division and all of that good stuff. So that's the roster really in terms of the units. But if we're talking about, and I didn't even mention the company's champion, which is interesting because she's kind of a champion in absentia. That was going to be my question. Yeah. So Tony's, that's the thing they've done. It's kind of Brock Lesnar-ish, which is why some people are mad about it, but she's been coming in for tours every so often. 
and the company's been going on without the red belt. Like, Io's been defending the white belt. Now that Mayu's back, Tony defended the belt against her. Tony sort of legitimized her run as champion, so now she'll probably show up a little more often. But the interesting thing about Storm not being around much is it's allowed all these other stories, like with Tom trying to blow up people's exploding baseball bats and the stardom <laughs> draft and Eo's white belt. It's allowed all this other stuff to sort of take center stage. And if you'd have told me even like two years ago that this company was going to be able to survive the red belt not being around, how much I would have called you crazy, but they've done a remarkable job of making it work. So if we're going to talk about this in terms of like top to bottom card, you kind of have a big four of Tony Storm, Yoshirai, Mayu Iwatani, and Kagetsu is like your big four of the company. Then below them in some order, you have like Hanakimura, Jungle Kiona, Momo Watanabe, H. Hazuki. They're all like sort of in that second tier. Viper I would put in there too, even though she beats Storm now. Like they're like your second tier threats. They're like the mid, upper mid card. And then below that is a lot of some of the other names I start to mention, and like Natsuko Tora, Sumire Natsu. Like, and then your foreigners sort of fluctuate up and down depending when they come in, depending where their spot is. The one thing I will also say that Stardom is starting to do is it's starting to bring in younger foreigners too. Like Zaya Brookside is a younger foreigner. They have Candy Floss from the UK over there now who's 18. So they're sort of putting them in developmental roles, sort of giving them lower card matches for treating them like younger wrestlers rather than the traditional model of, wait, you're a guy, you know, guys, the same. they're going to come into this position, they're going to do this, this, and this, and they're going to go home. <laughs> so they're starting to really, I think, invest in foreign talent in the cards and give them the chance to grow. And I think a lot of that is because of uh, Kyrie leaving. And I think, honestly, I think by now they thought that Viper might be signed, and Kaylee Ray, who does a lot of tours for them, might be signed by the WWE. And so I think that there is some fear about that. They've started to, like, develop, and I think that's where the Women of Honor deal comes from. And I think that's where a lot of their foreigner strategy is starting to come from, is it's trying to identify talent young before WWE is going to potentially go in them. So even if WWE signs them one day, they've had time, they've had time to develop, and they've been able to play an important role for the company while they're there. Now, obviously, you mentioned red belt, white belt. For those that don't know, let's break down the championships that are in Stardom. I see we have six championships. One looks like it's uh, defunct, I guess, uh, declared vacant. I, I don't know. Uh, the artist okay, of Stardom. No, uh, so let's, let's, let's do this. So here's here. We'll do this quick. Ish. So the red belt, white belt thing goes back to all Japan women's because they had two belts. One was called the red belt, one was called the white belt. So it's a callback from Ogawa's old days of all Japan women's. The world of stardom title is the red belt. It is basically considered the top title in the company. It's considered to be traditionally held by the best wrestler in the company. It's one of the most protected title belts I can think of. The people who have held it are as follows. Nanai Takahashi held it at the very beginning of the company. She lost it to Alpha Female, who lost it to Yoshirai, who lost it to Yoshiko. It was then vacated because of the incident. Kairi Hojo beat Yoshirai in a decision match. Meiko Satomura beat Kairi Hojo. Yoshirai beat Meiko. Mayu beat Io. Tony beat Mayu. And that's it in over seven years now. Okay. So you're looking at a belt that that doesn't doesn't change hands very much. Kind of old, traditional, old school, for the most part, fairly long runs. 
getting a shot at this means a lot, especially if you're a native member of the roster. There aren't, I mean, foreigners will come in and get shots at the belt. Like, Vibers had a shot at the belt. Taya Valkyries had a shot. Shana Baszler had, like, foreigners get to sort of skip the queue a little bit because of the traditional rules of Japanese wrestling. But if you're a native and you get a shot at this thing, it's a really big deal. Which will then go on now to the white belt, the wonder of stardom, which is sort of, it's not really like an intercontinental title. It's kind of a 1A to the number one of the world of stardom belt. It's kind of for the wrestler that sort of embodies the spirit of stardom best. And okay. you can sort of see that when you look at whether it's Yuzuki Aikawa who held it or Akiyasukawa when she had it on several occasions. Mayu's held it. Io holding it now even kind of makes a, a sort of sense. Because it was like an intercontinental title, it would be really hard for someone as high up the ranks as EO to hold it, but it makes sense in a company where this belt isn't really considered a mid-level belt. Like, getting a shot at this is still a very big deal. Like, Kona getting a shot at that title was a huge deal for her career. It was sort of something that cementers, okay, you're now at a certain level because you're able to get a shot at this belt. And right now, EO is in one of her traditional very long reigns with it. I have no idea who's going to beat her for it, but it will be very interesting to find out. But that's, to me, the interesting thing about the belt is that it sort of has that idea of, okay, whoever's holding this is embodying the spirit of the company, which I think is kind of cool. We then have the high-speed title, which is currently being held by Mary Apache. She hasn't defended it in a while, so I don't really know where it's going. It wasn't originally a stardom belt. It came from a company called Neo. It was brought over when that company was defunct. Natsuki Tayo won it on an early stardom show. And then just started being defended as one of Stardom's titles. Mayu Iwatani held that belt for a very long time. It was arguably kind of the thing that sort of pushed her from where she was to the next level to the point where she started being really considered one of the top echelon of the company. It's a fun belt, especially when there's enough high-speed wrestlers to fight for it. Right now, it's kind of in a weird spot, so we'll see what happens with it. Then the last singles title. No, I forgot the SWA championship, which is currently held by Viper. The whole idea of the SWA belt is it's kind of like a foreigner belt. It's defended mostly among foreigners. Jungle Kiona has gotten a shot at it, so it's not exclusively foreigners, but Tony Storm has defended against a wide variety of other foreign stardom competitors and finally lost in like V15 or 16 to Viper, so now Viper's had it. She's defended against Jungle Kiona, so it's really too soon to see where her reign's going to go. And there's only been three champions of it, EO, Tony, and Viper. So it's young. So we'll have to see where things go, if it continues to maintain the primarily foreigners defended against thing, or if it starts to be a little bit more flexible. And lastly is the future of Stardom Belt, which we discussed a little bit already. I won't go into more detail about it. It's currently being held by Starlight Kid. Then we have the Goddesses of Stardom, which are the tag belts, currently held by the Oedo Ties, Hanekimura, and Kagetsu. They're your basic tag belts that you'd be used to in sort of any company. They usually don't get passed around that much either. They're kind of treated with sort of the respect of a top title. Oedo Tai have had a long run. Yoshirai and Mayu Watani had a very long run with them. And so it's, they kind of have built up a lot of cachet over time. As, so whoever's holding these is a fairly big deal. They usually get to hold it for a little bit. And then lastly, the belt that you mentioned is the Artists of Stardom, these six women tag titles. They are currently vacant because the draft broke up the current champions because the current champions ah. when Hazuki got drafted to Oedo Tai, and now it's all kinds of awkward. I love the belts because they're three different colors. Like one's like a sky blue, one's orange, and one's pink. 
and there's usually some kind of bickering over who gets to hold what bell, which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> that's that's interesting too. That the fact that they had the you know that they they break up the titles because of the the draft. It it once again the, you know not to not to go back to the draft too much, but yeah. it to me legitima- legitimizes what this draft was. I mean, they're splitting up champions to make this work. Yeah. It's it's a it's a great idea. It's it almost feels like it was done right from what WWE in a way was trying to do with not just having, Hey, this guy just showed up on your show. I guess he's part of this brand now. You know, it was, it was very well put together. It changed, I think just enough without changing too much, which is in some ways why I think this is a great time for anyone new to jump in. A lot of the storylines that are coming as a result of the draft are still being sort of formed and congealed. And so it's a good chance to really get in without having to catch up on too much. You can get your feet wet. You can listen to the promos. You can probably figure out pretty quickly, thanks to the English translations, what's really going on in the company. Now, this, this SWA World Championship, just touched me lastly on this, this yep. the championships, <laughs> is it kind of, with the way you're going, it, it sounds to me... Is this kind of like an equivalent of what the the IWGP US is right now, where it's kind of just defended by foreigners against foreigners? Kind of, yeah. It felt felt honestly to me like a while, like it was the Tony Storm Invitational Championship. (laughs) Just because (laughs) she held it for so long and so long. Like, like it felt like they just wanted to make her a big deal, and she was going to defend this belt forever, and it was going to be the thing that sort of got her onto the level of everyone else. Like, the fact that she beat Io Shirai to win it meant a huge amount because, like, no one beat Io. Like, no one beats Io barely to this day. So anytime you get a win over Io, especially for a title, it's really meaningful. But the belt, because she held it for so long, it's really hard to make a lot of assessments about what the belt is and where it's going to go. I mean, I think in theory the belt will probably get defended internationally so we'll see what happens there are a couple international defenses storm had i mean viper has it keeps a very busy schedule in a lot of places so we'll see if she uh is able to defend it a little more internationally as well but yeah i didn't really think of the iwgp us uh us analogy but i think it's a pretty decent one because that just kind of sees where that belt is kind of taken and and at first you know it was something i was kind of like ah you know you tried this with MVP a while ago, and you know, look what happened with you know what what happened doing that. Yeah, I see. And, yeah, yeah, and it just kind of you know, thank, thankfully Nakamura saved that title. And you know, when you mentioned the kind of going that route, it, it is first thing that sparked in my head. But I mean, yeah, that's it, you know, I, I look at it. Six hundred twelve days for Tony Storm. I mean, that if that isn't yeah. let's glorify Tony Storm, what is? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no. And, and and it works, I think, too, because stardom is because the foreigners are now, sort of like, in, like you mentioned with Jay White and Dave Finley, like Tony Storm and Viper can be an important match in a show that can draw in its own right. And, like, the, for, as the more over the foreigners get, like, the fact that you can have foreigner versus foreigner on a match and be an element of what's drawing to the show is super helpful, especially given that stardom world with stardom world you have an international presence so you have people in the uk and australia and the united states who are watching so it, it just sort of helps further the image of the company is a worldly the worldly like additionally not just japan focus but brings in people from everywhere so kind of bringing bringing groups of people together one thing that i'm always interested in companies is i i enjoy a good tournament 
at times or a good league or anything like that. What does stardom offer, if anything, in terms of tournaments or leagues in that, in that aspect? So we're coming up on their first tournament of the year, which is a pretty interesting one. It's called the Cinderella Tournament. Single elimination, 16 women. The winner gets a wish of their choice, which is usually a shot at the World of Stardom title, and they get to wear a, big, a nice Cinderella dress. And it's kind of this cool thing. Like, it's sort of what that Ryugoku Cinderella show eventually evolved into yearly tournament. Okay. And so you basically have matches of certain, like, short lengths, elimination, you win the matches in the first couple of rounds by pinfall submission or over the top. And over the top opens up the chance for upsets and things like that as there's the shorter time limits you can get buys and people advance. Like the over the top rope elimination aspect theoretically allows for the kind of upsets that you can't have like based on traditional Japanese booking if there's only pinfall or submission. So you can get some surprises and things like that. There have been three so far. Mayu Iwatani won the first two. She came in second to Tony Storm in the third one. And so now we're going to see who wins it this year. It's coming up pretty, I think it's coming up like very soon. I think it's like the end of this month. So that's something to look forward to if you're starting on world. The other two tournaments are more traditional league formats. That'll be a little, that'll be familiar to you if you're a fan of new Japan or the champions carnival or anything like that. The five-star grand prix, the big singles league, you have red star block, blue star block, Everyone faces everyone in league play. At the end of the league, the top in the red stars fights the top in the blue stars. Winner of that gets a shot at the red belt as well. And then you have right after that the Goddesses of Stardom Tag League, which is basically what it sounds like. You have usually two four-team blocks. Everyone fights everyone in league play there too. Winners of each block faces off. Winner gets a shot at the tag belts, or sometimes when the tag belts are vacant, they'll get the tag belts themselves. That usually varies based on what the situation of the company is. But those are your big three events every year. Then you have the future, then not the future, pardon me, the Rookie of Stardom tournament, which happens at the end of the year. And it's varied. Sometimes it's a single match. Sometimes it's like a little tournament thing. So it's like there's a lot of variance depending how many rookies debut in a given year, but that's like the last like sort of tournamenty style honor of the year. So those are your four big things like that that take place over the course of the calendar year. I, I I'm intrigued by the Cinderella tournament. I see the last one was April 30th of last year. So that definitely they keep on a you know honor tradition. It's going to be soon. That kind of leads me to one of the last questions I had here. What's their their WrestleMania? Their Wrestle Kingdom. I mean, I think the interesting thing to some extent about you, I would argue that the recent Dream Slam shows are their attempt to really create something like that. Like, they have random big things throughout the year. Their anniversary show every year is usually kind of important. But until, like, Rossi decided to bring back the Dream Slam name from, like, the old All Japan Women Days, that big, those big super cards they had with outside participation and everything, I don't think you really had like a big single event. Like usually like the 1224 event every year is pretty big, but I think this whole dream, the dream something is their attempt to make something like that. Because that Nakia show had like nine matches and it's been a long time since Stardom's put together like a nine match card. Like you have a lot of like five and six match cards. So a nine match card is something pretty significant. So I think that assuming it comes back next year, I think those Dream Slam shows are going to be sort of like what you would consider the Wrestle Kingdom or the big event of the company. I'm I'm totally interested on this. I'm I'm trying to finish up the. I just got All Japan streaming service. I'm trying to 
wrap up this Champions Carnival and be 100% caught up on that. And I think once the Carnival's over, I'm going to get I'm going to pick up Stardom and I think that's going to be my next adventure to to start diving into. Um last question I have for you then. As a new viewer from from, you know, kind of novice, know that you know know some names if I see them, but I can't always put everything together. What's a good starting point? Is it truly to start right now with the draft or is there a better starting point for somebody who is willing to watch a little bit to get caught up? You can definitely start with a draft. In some ways I would recommend starting with a draft because you're up to date on current storylines and you're not really missing anything. If you want to go back, there's a lot of good stuff in the archives. I'm actually in the process right now of going through everything on Stardom World and putting together a spreadsheet of basically with this is super good, this is very good, this is worth watching because this, this, and this, and like that's something I'm slowly working on, but since I have to go back to 2017 and 2016 to get everything on World, it's going to take a little bit longer than I would like. But if you're a completely new fan, I would recommend this is a good place to jump in if you want to see some particularly good matches from the past, just feel free to ask on Twitter or your social media of choice. There are many stardom fans out there who will be more than happy to point you towards their particular favorites on World for you to watch. I would recommend any of Io and Mayu's trilogy. There's a 2017 Kari Hojo versus Jungle Kiona match for the white belt. That's very good. Kiona Matsumoto versus uh, Kari and Yokobito from 2016 for the goddesses is also very good. The five versus five unit match this year with Queen's Quest away to tie. Very good. I really love that explosion bat match because it's so different from everything Stardom's ever done. And, like, if you're a big fan of death matches, if you've watched a lot of death matches, I think it might fall kind of flat with you because one of the things about this match is that crowd is so terrified at the prospect of one of these women getting blown up with this baseball bat. They completely 1,000% believe in the seriousness of this stipulation. So when they go to the corner and hit this button, and that when you hit the button, it starts the siren in the arena that signifies that the bat is primed. So now when you swing it and hit someone with it, it's going to explode. You can sort of hear these gasps of horror in the arena. And so then, like, the partner will run over and turn it off before they can use it. So it just builds this, like, really, really dramatic tension throughout the match. And I don't think you could get it anywhere other than stardom. Because remember, this is a company that is known for having these athletic matches with attractive women. It is not known for people getting blown up. It's it just... It's, <laughs> A dynamic that I can't even really describe unless you watch this thing and just listen to the crowd and look. And, like, just the first time this bat goes off, the gasp and then the silence in the crowd. It's it's kind of like when Brock beat Taker at WrestleMania. It's just this horrified silence. Like, what the hell happens now? Yeah, Everyone's waiting for the first person to talk first. <laughs> yeah. Like... So my recommendation is if you're going to start getting into the company in terms of following the storylines, this is a really good time. You might go back to 4.15, I think, is the show with the draft on. They're starting to put that up now. That might be the best place to start watching because you can see the draft play out and sort of see what people say. Like, that stuff's starting to go up, so I'm really looking forward to actually getting to see it as opposed to having to follow the coverage on the English language site. So I'm looking forward to seeing the translations and the details and how all the stuff goes back and forth. So... I would actually recommend those draft draft shows being a good place to start. 
And then you can go back and look at, like, if you want to see particular matches in the past, I'm sure there's lots of people out there, myself included, be more than happy to help with recommendations. When was, like, now what show again is this this Bat show? Because I, I think this is going to be my first thing I watch. I'm so the intrigued bat by show, this. The Bat show is, uh, it's the Nagoya show. I want to say it's like April 1st or April 2nd, I think. It's the oh, last, so yeah. very recent. It's look, very recent. Yeah, so look up... Uh, when you get World, look up the most recent show from Nagoya, and that's that's what it is. That's also a show that has Tony Storm versus Mayu for the Red Belt. There's a whole bunch of interesting stuff on it, so and just capped off by a spectacle that is basically unlike anything <laughs> Stardom's ever done. Maybe that's going to be my kicker. Is I'll just start at the beginning of April and and just kind of get caught up and then go back and just pick you know just that and you know because that's that's the one thing I'm intri- interested about is as I start seeing these people. I'm going to want to go back and, and, okay, what else have they done? And I think that your, your idea of starting now is, is I think you're 100% correct. I think that was a great idea because it gives people the opportunity to see, see what's going on and then go back. And like you mentioned, everyone's, you know, you, you can always find people that are willing to help. And I, I think yeah. that's a great, great suggestion from you. And quite uh, frankly, I think any time you delve into a new promotion, part of the joy of this is discovery figuring out, okay, who are your favorites? So if you really gravitate to a couple of wrestlers in particular, then you can go back and look at old shows and start watching their matches and follow their career back and sort of see, okay, what have they done? How'd they get here? Like, all that stuff. Like, to me, that's the most fun part of, like, a promotion, which is why it's this cool on, like, WWE Network. If, like, if you imagine, like, being a fan today who, like, discovers, like, Steve Austin is the first time. And so then they start going back in the archive and they see Austin won this random Raw. But then they're watching some old WCW show and like, hey, isn't that Steve Austin? What does he look weird with that, like, blonde hair and everything? What's with that star on his trunks? <laughs> yeah, Gosh, it's it just, so... to me, so much fun. That's, like, that's in some ways that kind of discovery is the best part of any hobby. So I think it's especially true in wrestling. I'm, I am so excited to get this going. I've... I've been kind of lulling through the the champion carnival. The, the main thing that I cared about was the the opening show, so I kind of got my uh, Kento Miyahara shingle match out of the way that I was looking forward to, and I'm kind of just lulling through it all just for the sake of watching it and you know figuring out this and that and knowing what's going on. But I I cannot you, I mean, wait for this stardom. I I cannot. I'm so excited for this. It's the one promotion that I follow pretty much religiously these days. I watch I'll watch most WWE pay-per-views at some point. I'll watch most big New Japan shows, but I'm 33 years old as we touched in the beginning. Got a job. Like my time is not what it was. Like if this was in college, I would just I would get nothing done. I would have less of a social life than in college because I'd be watching like seven promotions. It is so bad. And I'm kind of jealous of all the people that have the time to follow it now, but Look, I get to watch. I get to watch Stardom and get to talk about it with way more people on Twitter than I ever expected to. Like the company's popularity is super cool now because I get to talk about it. I was actually in Japan, I got to see them live, which was just a super cool experience. It's like one of those things. Like I'm front row at a Stardom show in Osaka. Like how the hell did this happen? <laughs> I, you know, and is this something too? Obviously. I know companies run during during that Wrestle Kingdom time. Does Stardom run a show around when Wrestle Kingdom? We're 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 all going out to Tokyo for Wrestle Kingdom next year, and I'm hoping to catch 
a whole slew of shows. We're going to go from like maybe December yeah, 29th to like January 10th. We're going to go for almost two weeks, I think. Yeah, there's a, that was basically the exact time I was in Japan. Like, and like I was with uh, my now fiance, so it was not as much wrestling as I would have done if I was on my own. But yeah, like every company runs a bunch of shows. Stardom doesn't run one of its big shows during that time, but they will. Um, but they usually run a Shinkiba show like in the first couple of days of the year, like one three, one four, and then they usually run something in like Osaka or Nagoya, like on like somewhere between like the fifth and the ninth. So you'll probably get a couple of chances to see them depending where you want to go and what you want to do and all that stuff. So they run a couple shows in that time frame. I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm, I'm so excited. I, I, you have no idea how much I appreciate you jumping on doing this. Uh, I totally once again apologize that one, this took a little bit later tonight to get going. And two, I totally didn't realize that, I never sent that message to you. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Apparently, I was in, like, a wind tunnel or something that day. So, yeah, no worries. It's totally okay. I also apologize. We probably went way over an hour. <laughs> you know, to, to be to be fair, we we can set this into three-hour increments, and I set it as long as possible. Because I'm like, okay. it's, it's talking wrestling, and when you get people talking about wrestling – you know, we just keep talking, and that's just how it goes. It's, it's yeah. pro wrestling. You yeah, pretty much. It, I mean, like, yeah. There, there's, yeah, there's a bond between people who like wrestling that, like, people who don't like wrestling probably can't ever totally fully understand. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, plug everything you got. I, I want I want people to be able to, to you know, to, you know, see the stuff you write and and hear this, you know, everything. So so they can really, if they have questions, even you know, sure. Sure, it's all plug all of my stuff. Like I'm available on Twitter at the Dragon Suplex. That's my main Twitter account. That's where I post most of my thoughts about stardom. I write for Voices of Wrestling. I'm working on a piece right now. Hopefully, we can get it up before I've got to leave on uh, business uh, next couple days. But it's about the history of Oedo Tai, so it'll cover some of the stuff I've talked about here today. But it goes into more detail about a bunch of stuff. And rather than be like sort of a dry history piece. I try through anecdotes to sort of give you the flavor of what this unit has been and meant throughout the history of the company. Hopefully look out for that in the next couple of days to a week. I'm also in the long run, once my life schedule calms down a little bit, working on launching my old, a new podcast under my old handle, which I've reopened at Stardom Project. So it's supposed to ideally be a history focused, history focused podcast is one of the disadvantages of Stardom World right now is the backlog isn't very filled in, which is, in my opinion, in large part because they try to translate all the new stuff and they don't have a lot of people to translate it. So trying to translate years and years and years and years of old footage that, depending how things with samurai work, they may or may not have the rights to, gets kind of tricky. So as someone who's seen almost the entire catalog of the company, I just want to kind of like orally record history for each of the years of the company. And then in time, once I've done some of that stuff. I'll start having guests on to talk about favorite wrestlers, favorite matches, all that kind of stuff. That's the project I have coming. So if you want to be kept up to date on that when it happens, follow at Stardom Project. That's really all I've got. I don't have a lot of stuff, but I'm more than happy to uh, talk to anyone who's interested about Stardom on Twitter, give match recommendations, all that kind of stuff. And I can introduce you to my to a lot of the people that I talk to on Twitter, we are all obsessed with the company and think about the booking way too much and way too hard. And we can <laughs> welcome you to uh, to that ex- exclusive, not very exclusive community, but we, we love it. And it's just fun. The more the merrier. And that's 
a lot of ways why I came on here today because I kind of wanted to spread the word about this company because it has a little bit of everything. It has high-end, high-quality matches. It has the ability to follow a wrestler that you like from their young lioness days, watching their struggles, watching them in the beginning sort of learning their craft and eventually going on one day to be one of the best because I watched from the beginning. I saw Mayu in her awkward rookie days and I watched her very, very slowly grow into what she has become. And as I mean, you watch new Japan, there's just think about how much more rewarding that Jay white versus David Finley matches. If you're someone oh who God, watched them when they were trying to beat so each other right. Boston crabs. Oh my gosh. It's, it's, it's so much, you know, even, even like I'm, I'm waiting for Kawato you know, two years from now or whatever to come back. I mean, it's the young lion thing is, is so good because even, even guys like Naito and, and Ujiro watch them, you know, team no limit days when they finally came and started doing something. I mean, it's just, I love seeing the the start. I can't think about that without thinking of the time I saw them fight homicide and Hernandez for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championships, <laughs> mind you, live at lock, at lockdown in Philadelphia in the steel cage. It's it's so random because you're like, why is Hot Stuff Hernandez in a junior title match? <laughs> and can you imagine what Naito and Yujiro got to be thinking in a? All right, we're an American. We're working in a cage here. You know, oh, cool, and then we're going to get the Dudleys soon. Like, it's just so random to think that. And then you just think about even, like, because you never know how they're going to develop, right? Like, Yujiro came back. It's not like Yujiro's got a solid spot for himself, but then did anyone know Naito would become what he's become? No. No, and, you know, it's it's crazy, too. You know, see, this is why this is why we set the time so long. Is <laughs> You know, it, it took, what, Naito essentially almost three excursions? I mean, what he became. Yeah, and it's and you think about Okada too. Just what he like, not like like TNA then used him in any format, but he picked up enough. Just looking at people's characters and the Pope and whatever, and he put together the Rainmaker, and the rest is and the rest is just history. And (laughs) it wasn't for being the Green Hornet sidekick, that's for sure. Good God, that. That's still ultimate, like, this guy who was supposed to be Kato from the Green Hornet is now one of the greatest wrestlers I may have ever seen in my life, and he's he hasn't even arguably hit his wrestling prime yet. And it's like, and that's happening now in stardom. Like, when you see Azumi going from, like, being a kid's fight wrestler in three-minute exhibition matches, starting to pull off, like, double jump, like, cross bodies and sort of having these rivalries with Scarlet Kid and starting to like put stuff together. Like it's just, you get to really sort of follow and chart like the journey of them as wrestlers, because it's not like, it's not like WWE where sometimes you just watch stuff and it's like, okay, why did, why is Jinder Mahal suddenly after being doing nothing for the past, like whatever years, he just became like the second the runner up in this Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal and now he suddenly randomly has a push for no like discernible reason. Like <laughs> Stardom and the one thing that I like stardom is traditional, it's in some ways too traditional for me. I just like sometimes like, Okay, come on, please push this person, please, please, please. But it's so much more rewarding than it happens that I'm usually willing in the long run to be like, Okay, I can wait. 
I can be patient. <laughs> All right, so thanks again for giving me your time, man. We'll, we'll talk again. No John. problem, of course, but take care. All right, All right see time. ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.